All right, interesting topic. Uh, this is the post-election message. So um, even if you don't agree with everything that's said, at least it won't be boring, okay? Um, this is not an emotionally neutral subject, right? Um, I was talking to some of our, uh, some pastors here in town that I get together with on a regular basis. And uh, this was a few months ago and they were talking about what they were gonna talk about and the series that they're gonna go through to kind of get their church thinking about um, the, the, the election or whatever. <clears throat> and they said, well, we're going to do it before um, the actual election. I said, well, I'm actually going to wait till after the election to hopefully, you know, hopefully some of the, the emotion will come down. Maybe it'll calm down a little bit. And they said, you're a chicken. <laughs> I said, I don't care. That's what I'm doing. Um, and so we're here and I can't say that the emotion has died down, um, but this is, this is where we're at. Um, today, I I just want to, to the best of my ability, to help us think about um, what it looks like for the church to be the church in a politically charged right versus left cancel culture. What does it look like for us? Because let's let's just be honest right from the beginning, like your candidate won or lost this week based on how America voted but the church is going to win or lose moving forward based on how we respond. And so I want us to think about individually and corporately, how do we respond in the culture that we find ourselves in? Because I don't see the culture changing anytime soon. So how do we, as followers of Jesus, respond? How do we act? How do we live in days like this, and I, I just kind of need to admit up front two things. Uh, number one, I am going to be an equal opportunity offender today. Um, so if you leave as a Democrat, if you leave as a Republican, as you leave as an independent, and you're not a little bit offended, I probably haven't done my job very well, okay? And, and judging by how first service went, I'm pretty sure that's how it's going to be, okay? I'm an equal opportunity offender today. The second thing I need you to know is that um, I, I just need to admit that the approach that we take as a church um, is largely influenced by how I experienced this in church growing up. Um, I grew up in a, in a church culture, like many of you did, that was against pretty much everything. Like, I thought that's what Christians did. We were just against stuff. And, and, and the list was long. It was, it was dancing. It was movies. There was a period where we were against Cabbage Patch dolls. I don't understand that, but it was there. There, there were all kinds of things growing up that, that we were against. And this, uh, this culminated for me in college. I don't, I, I, I don't remember everything that went along with this, but um, it, it revolved around the Harry Potter book series. And this was back in the day when Sunday Night Church was a thing. Some of you guys remember Sunday Night Church? And um, our pastor at that point for, I don't know, it was three or four weeks maybe, um, he, he, he just went on this, this, went through this series against the Harry Potter books. And I've never read the books. I've only seen bits and pieces of the movie, so I'm not saying I'm for or against it. I'm just saying, I, I just remember thinking, there it is again. <laughs> We're against something. And, and I didn't necessarily disagree with the motive or the intention, like I agreed with the theology, everything. But I just thought, we're, we're against something, again. And, 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 and you just need to know, I decided somewhere along the way. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life as a follower of Jesus, and certainly as a leader in the church, constantly against stuff. 
I, I, just, I just didn't want to do that, even if it was under the umbrella of, you know, defending truth and, and the holiness and righteousness and all that stuff that I completely agree with. It just seemed like too many times we tried to make a point instead of actually making a difference in our culture. In fact, if you don't remember anything else from the message today, if you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember this. This is huge. I heard this from, from Andy Stanley years ago. It's always easier to make a point than it is to make a difference. It's always easy. And if you're a parent, you know this. You're a parent. You know, you sat your kids down. You said, look me right in the eye. Give me your undivided attention. And you blah, 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 blah. Whatever it is you were going to tell them. Now you go to your room and you think about that. And they went to their room and they, oh, mother, father, that was so wise. <laughs> no, they didn't. They went to their room and played on their tablet or their phone, right? And you're like, oh, I, I did such a good job. I made my point. I got through to them. No, you didn't, right? Your kids didn't change because telling you you're wrong is not the same as guiding you to do something different. Trying, trying to convince somebody they're wrong is different than equipping them to do what's right. It's just completely different. So, so consequently, making a point's really easy, like especially if you're somebody like me who gets a microphone strapped to his face and has people show up and sit in rows and they all agree, yeah, I mean, amen. It's easy to make a point. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to make a difference. But as a church, we've just decided, you know what? We're not going to be the point-making church. We're going to be the difference-making church. And to make a difference requires a completely different strategy. It, it's much harder. It's much messier. It takes steady plotting. It confuses people on both sides of whatever issue you're dealing with. It's, it's just so much harder. But we've just decided, instead of sitting back and lobbying these grenades into culture, we're going to do the hard work of trying to make a difference. We want to be a church that genuinely tries to make a difference. And here, here's what's amazing to me. I, I, hope, I hope I can make the point here. When you read the Gospels, when you read the book of Acts, when you read Paul's letters, they give us a roadmap for how to do that. And so I, I just want to point out a few things that we find in the New Testament that I think can help in our current climate. I'm going to walk through these, um, and then we're going to look at some scripture, a, a couple passages of scripture here in a minute that kind of summarize the idea. But here's, here's how specifically Jesus and Paul made a difference instead of just making a point. The first thing, what they did, they constantly leaned relationally in the direction of those they disagreed with. They, they were constantly building bridges to people that they disagreed with, but they wanted to influence. A great example of this is, is one day Paul is in Athens. You can read about this in Acts 17. He's walking around in Athens, and he notices all of these idols all over the place to these different gods. And Paul is a Jewish man, born and raised on the Hebrew Scriptures. And the, one of the preeminent laws when it came to Judaism was what? No idols, right? No idols idols. There's one God, and you do not, you cannot, you shall not have any images that represent me or any other God you think exists. But here's Paul walking around a city full of false gods. What would have been the easiest sermon for Paul, the Jewish man, to preach? No idols. And he would have been exactly right. 
He had scripture to back him up. He had God to back him up. He could say, thus saith the Lord. But that's not what he did. That's not what Paul did. Paul was smart enough to know, and, and he finds this altar that didn't have an image on it, the altar to the unknown God, which is kind of funny. It's, it's, it's actually hilarious when you think about it. The Athenians, they didn't want to offend any of the gods, so they thought, we might have left one out. So let's, let's create this altar. There's no image on it, but just in case another god shows up, we can say, we knew you were out there, but we didn't know what you looked like, so you're, you're the just-in-case god, right? That's, what, that's what's going on there. That's how they thought. And so Paul thought, that's interesting. So he says, guys, religious. I'm religious too. He creates common ground. He builds a bridge. We're both very, very religious. And I notice that you've got, you know, this unknown God. And guess what he preaches on? He doesn't preach about no, no, no idols. He doesn't preach against idolatry. He preaches the resurrection of Jesus. And some people hear the message and they think he's crazy. But some people want to hear more. So they come back the next day. Instead of positioning himself against something, he built a bridge to the people he would have completely disagreed with theologically. Which brings us to the next point. They were constantly at odds with the religious majority of their day. This is so crazy, but it's crazy helpful if you'll pay attention to it. If you had sat Paul or Jesus down with, with the religious majority of their day and you know the Pharisees, the religious teachers and gave them a quiz about theology, they would have been exactly on the same page. They, they all believe that there was one God, that he created everything, that the ethics or the morals that you find in the Hebrew scriptures is how you should live your life. I mean, you could just go right down the list. They agreed on everything, but they were constantly butting heads on approach and application. It was, it was approach and it was application that actually had the Pharisees try and crucify Jesus. It was approach and application that actually made them arrest Paul and send him to Rome, where he was eventually beheaded. They agreed perfectly, 100% on theology. But approach and application is where they butted heads on with the religious majority. The third thing you observe, they were not concerned about guilt by association. Now, let me be clear. This one is not a parenting strategy. Okay? Don't go home and say, well, Pastor Tim said we shouldn't be guilty. Well, kids, go hang out with whoever you want to. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus and Paul were never concerned about guilt by association. But let me ask you a question. In the New Testament, which group was fanatically concerned about guilt by association? Yeah, I heard it from somebody online. You said Pharisees, right? I heard it. Pharisees. The Pharisees were fanatically concerned about guilt by association. They, they, they were the ones who had Jesus arrested, illegally tried, beaten. I mean, they hired people to lie about him. And then they take him to Pilate. And Pilate says, hey, guys, come on in. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. We can't come into your house. We'll be ceremonially unclean. What a bunch of hypocrites. You can lie. You can illegally try somebody and have him killed, but you don't want to be in a Gentile's house because you'll be ceremonially unclean? You never, you never find Jesus worried about guilt 
by association. In fact, what was Jesus' reputation? He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. To which the Pharisees would say, okay, so by hanging out with sinners, are you saying it's okay to sin? To which Jesus would respond, are you kidding me? Sin is what ultimately will kill me. Sin is what will put me on a Roman cross. Sin is what will kill me so that you don't have to face death. I am not saying that sin is okay. I'm trying to save sinners. So while you Pharisees sit safely with each other and you talk to people in this echo chamber that believe the same thing you do, I'll be over here engaging with the people far from God. (laughs) You never, you never find Jesus concerned with guilt by association. In fact, if Jesus was worried about guilt by association, he would have never come to earth. Next thing. They refused to be dragged into debates that distracted them from the primary issues. This is so relevant right now. I, I, I could probably talk the entire time about this, okay? But Jesus, Jesus is walking along one day. This is Matthew 21, Luke 20. I think Mark records the story as well. And the Pharisees say, hey, Jesus, all this crazy new stuff you're teaching, by whose authority are you teaching? And Jesus knew it was a trick question. And so Jesus says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. And Jesus said, by whose authority did John baptize people? And the Pharisees come over here and they have this little huddle and they say, okay, if we say it was by God's authority, he's going to ask us why we didn't let John baptize us. And if we say it's not by God's authority, the people are going to stone us because they love John the Baptist. And so these courageous, wise Pharisees come back and they say, we don't know. And Jesus says, okay, I'm not going to answer your question either. And he walks off. He walked off. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus know by whose authority he taught? Of course he did. Of course he did. But here's what else he knew. There are some questions you should never answer. That is a parenting strategy, by the way. You should teach. We should teach our kids this. Like, depending on who it is, and where it is, and who's asking, when they're asking. Maybe you have an idea of why they're asking. There's some, there's some things you just shouldn't answer. Paul. Paul teaches the young pastor, Timothy. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies that you know will lead to quarrels. Which means, if Timothy was alive today, he probably wouldn't be on Facebook. It's a little joke. He wouldn't have anything to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. There are some debates, there are some arguments, there are some quarrels, there are some questions that we just shouldn't get dragged into. We should refuse to speak, even if we have an answer. Paul and Jesus both understood this. And then the last observation we'll talk about, they didn't judge non-Christians for behaving like non-Christians. Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 5. He he asks, what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Which the implication is none. I have no business judging people outside the church. He was teaching that the church makes the most difference when we refuse to police the behavior of those outside the church and instead hold those inside to the same standard. That's what he taught. 
See, Paul didn't go into Athens and say, I can't believe they're worshiping these idols. We've got to change the laws around here. That's not what Paul does. Of course they're worshiping idols. They're not Jewish. They don't believe the same thing that we believe. And so he never expected non-Christians to behave like Christians. You say, Tim, does that mean we shouldn't be concerned with people's behavior? Absolutely we should. But that's why you build relational bridges. That's why you go and do the hard, messy work of trying to have a relationship with somebody who doesn't believe anything like you. Because you can just lob some grenades and make a point, or you can do the hard work of making a difference. And Paul and Jesus both, they both understood this. So, real quick, so many passages that we could look at, but I just want to look at two. And I think there's, there's one thing Jesus said, one thing that Paul said that kind of underscores this. If you want to follow along, the first one's in Matthew uh, chapter 5. Jesus said this. You, you, you've heard this before. Many of you have it memorized. You might even know a song about this one. Okay? Here we go. Jesus said this. You, talking to, to a group of followers, talking plural. This is plural you. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. The implication was that the world is dark, and, and God has put a flashlight in it, and that's you. The world is dark. The world is in trouble. The world is wandering around lost because it's dark, and God has done something unique in this generation. He's put a light in the world, and you are that light. You are the light of the world. He goes on, a town Built on a hill, cannot be hidden. That's a little bit odd for us. But just think about the last time you were flying at night and you looked down and you saw just this island of light and a sea of darkness. Like you can't hide a city like that. Neither. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Question, do you put the lights on the floor or the ceiling in your house? On the ceiling. Why? So it spreads the light all over the place. And people are listening to this and saying, okay, Jesus, I get that. I'm tracking. But what in the world is your point? What are you getting at? Here's his point. In the same way, like a city that cannot be hidden, like a light on a light stand, in the same way, let your light shine before others that are in darkness, that they may see your, say these two words with me, good deeds, not your post on Facebook. Your good deeds. If you want to make a point, keep posting stuff online. If you want to make a difference, go out and love your neighbor. Do some good deeds so that people will connect the dots and they won't glorify you. They'll see your good deeds and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. It's not about you getting the glory. It's about him getting the glory. So your morality, your marriage, the way you disciple your kids, the way you spend your money, the way you give your money, the way you participate in politics, the way you foster, the way you adopt, the way you love, the way you don't judge, do all of that in a way that people in darkness see you. They look at you and they go, whoa, I don't believe the same stuff they do, but Man, I hope my daughter marries one of them because when they make a promise, they keep it. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'd ever want to be a Christian, but I want to hire a whole bunch of them. They're so honest. They always work hard, and I never have to worry about them stealing from me. 
Jesus taught that we're to live our life in such a way that you make a point by making a difference, like light in darkness, right? Here's, here's what Paul said. This is uh, Colossians chapter 4. And again, Paul is talking to the church. He's talking to followers of Jesus. Colossians 4 verse 5, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. This is his terminology. It's not good people versus bad people. This is people who believe versus people who don't. They're outside the faith. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. If you want to, another way to say it, if you want to make the most of every opportunity, be wise in the way how you act towards outsiders. Then he says, let your conversation be always full of what? Grace. Let your conversation be always full of grace. They're supposed to be what of grace? Full of. Full of. That little Greek word full there means there's hardly room for anything else. Like it's so, your conversation is so full of grace that if you're not careful, oops, I spilled some grace on you. I say, hold it, hold it really, really smooth. You better be, you better be careful. You're going to pour it on me. There's no room for anything else. Always be full of grace, seasoned with salt. It's full of grace, seasoned with salt. And, and, and I... I don't know this for, for a fact, but I wonder. I wonder if we, what we've done for the past 50 years in, in America, in maybe conservative evangelical America, is our conversations with outsiders have been full of salt seasoned with grace. Like, shame on you. You're, you're evil. You're wicked. You're corrupting. But if you ask for forgiveness, sprinkle a little grace. I wonder if we got it backwards. That it's supposed to be full of grace, sprinkled with salt. Now, here's something that I, I don't think we think a lot about unless you're a history teacher. But after Jesus left, after Paul died, Christians got this right for the first 300 years. It's why, it's why, it's why Christianity eventually became the, 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 the state religion. Of Rome. But over those first 300 years, um, there were at least three major plagues in the Roman Empire. And during those plagues, it's documented. This is documented. You can read it for yourself. When those plagues hit, the rich people left town first, the pagan priests left second, and then the poor people, the average person, was just left to fend for themselves and, or die. And, and, and the pagans, when they would leave town, they would put their sick, their dying, their friends, their family, out into the street, and they left town because they were afraid to die. Christians were not afraid to die. And so they stayed behind, and while they cared for their own, they also cared for the pagans who were left to die. And their light shone, and their grace was evident, and their salt preserved in such a way that many of those cities survived. Because they nursed the sick back to health. There was a, a Roman emperor named Julian. Uh, he would eventually become known as Julian the Apostate because things weren't going well in the empire. 
and he thought they'd offended the Roman gods by turning to the Christian god. And so Julian wanted to reinstate paganism in Rome and get them back to their paganistic roots, okay? You might say, I don't know, he wanted to make Rome great again? Is that too soon? It's probably too soon, okay. But here's what he did. He ran into some trouble, okay? He ran into some trouble because Christians were generous and caring and benevolent. Paganism had a hard time competing. They couldn't compete with Christianity. And we actually have a fragment of a letter that Julian wrote to some of his pagan priests. And I want you to listen to his letter, a portion of it. He says this, Recent Christian growth is caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence towards strangers. He's going, he's going, we have a problem. The Christians are too good. They're too moral. I, I, don't, I, don't, think it's, I don't think it's real. I think it's pretended moral character because nobody, nobody loves their wife that much. Nobody loves their kids that much. Nobody loves the poor and sick that much. But even if it's pretended character, like we can't compete with that. He goes on. I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priest, talking about his own pagan priest, the impious Galileans, that's how he referred to Christians, the impious Galileans devoted themselves to benevolence. The impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us, but they're getting aid from these impious Galileans. It's the Christians. It's the Christians that keep taking in orphans. They keep taking care of the poor. They keep taking care of the sick. They're giving generously. Nobody's going to join our pagan cult when they've got that. In fact, some people, some historians, and this is disputed, but some historians believe that Julian's dying words were, you have won, Galilean. In other words, he's, he's, he's recognizing that Jesus and his movement would far outlast his push to get Rome back to paganism. And you know what? Whether he said it or not, he's right. Jesus and his movement long outlasted Julian's push because of how the church responded. Do, do, you, know, do you know why Rome eventually made Christianity the state religion? It wasn't because of preaching. I love preaching. I'm going to keep preaching. It, it wasn't because Christians raged about their personal rights. It was because they decided just to do what Jesus told them to do. Go be light. Go, go, go police your own behavior. Police those inside. Let's, let's love our spouse well. Let's disciple our own children. Let's be extravagantly generous and willing to share. Let's have conversations with people outside the faith that are full of grace. And in doing all of that, we will be a light in a dark world, and people will notice, and when they do, we'll just point them to the glory of our Father in heaven. And you know what? If you love our country, if there's something in you that thinks we've got to take it back, that's fine. This is how you do it. You go love your neighbor like you love yourself. 
You love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. You give generously. You love lavishly. You, you, you stop being content with just making a point and you get everybody that agrees with you to stand and cheer and instead you start making a difference. Whatever that looks like for you, for your family, for us as a church, live your life in such a way that people go, they're different. They're, they're, they're actually kind of weird. I don't necessarily know why, but honey, I think you should date one of those Christians because they always tell the truth. So in closing, here's, here's what I think we need to do as individuals and, and, and more as a church. In light of what Jesus taught, in light of what Paul and the early Christians did to make a difference instead of just making a point. Well, here's what we can do. Number one, we can decide that taking a public stand on anything the public wants us to take a stand on is neither necessary nor wise. There's some conversations. There's some arguments I just think we don't even need to get into. And people, this is, this is how it works out in church. Um, people will often ask me, Tim, are you going to address that? And I say, probably not. Well, why? Well, because it makes a great point, but I don't see it making much of a difference. Second one, we can refuse, 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 refuse to fear guilt by association. We're going to befriend Republicans. We're going to befriend Democrats. We're going to befriend, befriend those, those who are left of us politically and right of us politically. And hear me, if, if that's uncomfortable to you, you might be uncomfortable at Grace Point. Because that's what we're going to do. And yes, on the outside, we will appear very inconsistent. Jesus appeared very inconsistent. He had dinner with a Pharisee and a tax collector. Like, Jesus, which side are you on? And I love what Tony Evans says. I'm not going to even be close to, to as good as he says it. But he says, Jesus didn't come to take sides. Jesus came to take over. And so I think we just follow what Jesus told us, what Jesus showed us, we're not going to take sides. But we're also not going to shrink from opportunities to build relational bridges to people outside of our circle. Next thing we can do, we can refuse to police the behavior of people who don't believe what we believe. You, you hear me say this or something like this from time to time, and maybe you didn't know I was doing it. But when I preach, sometimes I'll say something like, okay, those of you who are here in the room or those of you who are watching online that aren't followers of Jesus, you get a pass on this next part. You don't have to do what we're talking about. You can just sit there and watch us Christians squirm. But those of you who are followers of Jesus, you have to do this. You know why I say that? Because I want the non-Christians that are here with us in our community or watching online, I want them to know we don't expect them to live up to the same standard as we expect ourselves to live up to. I mean, come on. We're not even doing it that well, right? Like we struggle with it. So why would we expect somebody who doesn't believe or hold themselves to the same standard as we do to do it? We're just, we're just, we're just not going to police the behavior of those outside. Last thing, what we can do, we can admit we're not always going to get this right. We're not. We're just not. I'm not going to get it right. Okay? And, and here's, here's what would be really, really easy, especially in Topeka, Kansas, It'd be really easy in Topeka, Kansas, to simply align ourselves with conservative messages and party lines and chase off everybody that disagrees with us. It'd be really easy, to, or it'd be really easy just to stick our head in the sand 
and we just, you know, we preach, preach line by line, verse by verse, because we're biblical. And we just ignore everything that's going on around us. But to do what we're attempting to do, to make a difference instead of make a point, is difficult, it's messy, it's really hard. Which means we're going to make mistakes. Which means I'm going to make mistakes. I've probably made a few in the last 30 minutes. We're not going to get this right. But I will say this, for those of you who call Grace Point your home, thank you for allowing us to create the kind of church where Democrats and Republicans can come together and worship Jesus. Because in our culture, radical love is one of the best apologetics. Where else do you see people from complete opposite sides of the aisle coming together unified? Where else do you see that? That is one of the things in the future, in our culture, that will do the most good. That will be light in our dark world. So thank you for allowing us to create the kind of church. It's really hard. It's really messy. We're not always going to get it right. But we're trying. We're genuinely trying. And, and, and let me say this, the mission of the church, and for those of you who fit in this camp before you hate me, just, just go home and think about this, okay? The mission of the church is not to return America to colonial 18th century morality. That's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to make sure the entire world knows that God has done something in history through his son. That Jesus was sent to this earth. He died on a cross. He was buried. He was raised. And he was seen. And when that message grips a human heart, it doesn't change them from the outside in. It doesn't change them from political views to something else. It changes them from the inside out. They become more compassionate. They become more loving. They become more generous. They, they, they become better husbands and better wives and better fathers and mothers. They're more honest. They're better employers. They're better employees. We change from the inside out. And so, go be light. Go out give. Go out serve. Let's confuse people. Let's confuse people with our generosity and benevolence. Let's, let, let, let's make sure our conversations are so full of grace that people who agree with us theologically look at how we're handling it and they go, you might be too accepting of that. And you say, no, I'm not accepting of it. I'm just trying to spill grace everywhere. I'm trying to make sure my conversation is so full of grace that it gets over everything. Because I think that's what Jesus did. I think that's what Paul taught. And if we can do that, we will make a point. But we'll make a point because we made a difference. And I think that's what Jesus taught us to do. I think that's what Paul models. I think that's what the early church did. And I think we have, we have an opportunity as a church, probably the best opportunity we've had in our lifetime to be light and to be full of grace, seasoned, sprinkled with salt. And thank you, again, thank you for being the kind of church that understands this, that gets this. And if you're not a part of Grace Point and you want to be a part of a church like that, 
Come on. Your first step, you need to submit to the lordship of this Jesus guy. You need to make sure you're in right relationship with your Father in heaven. But come on. We want to be light. We want to be salt in a dark, tasteless world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is so much easier to sit up here and say, it's so much easier to sit in these, this place or to watch this online than it is for us to get up out of here and do it. So, Father, would you start with me? Would you make this a reality in my heart, in my life? Would you make me light? Would you help my conversations to be full of grace, sprinkled with salt? God, would you teach us what it looks like and, and, and so much of this is uncharted territory because we're not really sure what it looks like to do this. So God, as we pursue you, as we listen to your spirit who is at work and alive in us, we want to be obedient to where you send us. We want to be obedient to your word. We want to be obedient to what the spirit says. So Father, would you, would you help us but those of us who've, who've, who've honestly, sincerely submitted to you, would you help us with this? Would you help us to be the kind of people, the kind of homes, the kind of families, the kind of church that genuinely, honestly wants to make a difference in our culture? And in the end, it is not about us. It is not about growing this church. It's ultimately about glorifying you, our Father in heaven. Because this, this is your church. These are your people. This is your mission, not ours. So we just want to join you in it. Show us what it looks like for us to join you in your mission. And we ask all this. We pray all this in Jesus' name.